everybody. We are in Genesis 18 through the end of 21. That's a lot of ground to cover. So 18 through 21. And what we're looking at in this scope is God's judgment and grace in each one of these scenes. Okay, so that to me is kind of a good way to, to tie them together because these chapters are not written independent of one another. Like I could say, hey, we're going to look at Genesis 18, 17 through, through I'm just going to pick a random number, 24, right? And, and we're going to just preach this section. But, but these are stories. These are narratives. And that would be like me giving you seven verses and then saying, stay tuned till next week whenever we find out what happens when he turns the corner, right? And it's kind of this, this suspenseful thing. We're just, we're trying to keep some of these narratives of Genesis together because Genesis 18 is contingent upon 19, which is contingent upon 20 and 21. And 21 is contingent upon 22. Like these are narratives, they're stories. We're just trying to find a way to keep it manageable as we preach through it. I think if we begin with Sodom and Gomorrah and we go to the end of chapter 21, then we see God's judgment and His grace throughout these different chapters. And it's a good way to discuss God's judgment and grace. And so we're going to be um, starting in Genesis 18, and I'm going to actually read 16 through 33 of Genesis 18 to kind of set the context. Then we'll talk about God's uh, what is this conversation, what's really going on here, what is God's judgment, what is His grace, and then how do we see that in Sodom and Gomorrah and with Abimelech and with the birth of Isaac and with His blessing on Ishmael. Like We're going to see how these kind of weigh out. So the first part takes a while, and then everything else is a kind of a, a photograph of each moment and how we see His judgment and grace. And what we see in those instances, we see throughout the rest of Scripture. Okay, so here we go. Genesis 18, verse 16. I'm going to do 16, even though I said we're going to start in 17, because I have 16 right here. Then the men set out from there. Who are these men? These are angels of the Lord who have met with Abraham and Sarah. So 1816, then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Here we go. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you, for you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, 
Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And God answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. God answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Yeah, I don't know about y'all, but of all the passages in the Bible throughout all the years, that's one of the most enduring passages in my mind. Here's Abraham, a man, asking God. It seems like negotiating with God of, okay, God, you said this is the price, but what if this? As though God had not even considered those things. So this passage has kind of resonated with me throughout the years, and it's probably one that's resonated with many because I'm not going to lie. I step back from it, and I rightfully thinking, I think, go, what? Like, God didn't, God didn't consider these things? So I really want to look at his conversation. I think another reason that it resonates with us, though, is there's really two pretty profound truths that we have to grapple with if we want to be biblical Christians. The first one is this. God is holy, and he will judge and punish sin. That's in that passage. He is holy, and he will judge and punish sin. There is no biblical way around that. Number two, at the same time that he is holy and will judge and punish sin, here's number two, God is gracious and will save to the uttermost those who love him. And you have these two really profound truths that seem to be on a reckoning course up to this moment in this conversation. So on one hand, God is holy and he will judge and punish sin. And on this hand, equally true, God is gracious and he will save to the uttermost those who love him. The wicked and the righteous will be dealt with accordingly by the same God. Those resonate with me. Here's what I really want to dive into real quick. An understanding of God's judgment. And then we're going to look at an understanding of God's grace because those are the framework for what we're about to move through. But if God is holy and he will judge and punish sin, then, then we have to kind of say it this way. Because he is holy, he must punish sin. Like we've got to, we've got to wrestle with that. And we've got to be comfortable with that. If he's holy, he must punish sin, whether in their lives or our lives, his holiness demands that he will and must punish sin. For those who are not in Christ, he may punish it and he may do it in a totally different way. And we may see him reckon with individuals in a certain way. As Christians, we know this, that the punishment that was due to us has been laid on Christ. He has still punished and judged the sin that was in our lives. It just was if, it was, if his wrath was coming towards us, then Christ stepped in and interceded for us and he absorbed the full wrath of God. The punishment has still been paid. The reason I want to point that out and that I want to, we'll probably come back to it here in just a little bit, 
is because of this. Sometimes, as Christians, we forget the fullness of His forgiveness. He died once for all time. The unjust for the just in full. It's not as though He has to die again and again and again for our failures. He died once and for all the full forgiveness of sins. So that, though we struggle and contend with sin in this world, we are going to feel guilty. But the punishment's already been paid. It's time for forgiveness. And the hardest person to forgive is not our neighbor, but ourselves. So you need to understand that when you fail and when you've struggled and when you've sinned as a Christian, you know what? He died once for all time, the just for the unjust. He died knowing that we would struggle and continue in sin throughout our lives. It's not that we will not sin anymore. It's that we no longer make a practice of sinning. It's that we no longer love to sin anymore. It's that we are no longer under His wrath in our sin. It's that whenever we sin, we look to our God and Father and we say, please forgive me because I've sinned. And He can aptly, wholly, and justly say, it's already been paid for in my son. You're forgiven. Like, I just want you to remember that because we tend to keep visiting guilt upon guilt upon ourselves. And, and, and we should, in some regard, there's some measure of that. But the truth is, his forgiveness was full for all time. So, all right, with that said, God's judgment, because he's holy, he must punish sin. Let's just answer this question. What does it mean that God is holy? We say it a lot in church, but what does it actually really mean? That's what I want to look at. And I actually like this one website. It's gotquestions.org. Have you, any of y'all ever gone to Got Questions? Fantastic resource. There are lots of websites out there with lots of great information. I really like gotquestions.org. Because you know what? If you've got a question, they've got an answer. And they're, it's very theologically sound. Uh, you can Google, you know, God's judgment and wrath. And you're going to get a plethora of websites that, that come up. And um, in fact, Brooke and I were uh, talking this past week through a text about why didn't Abraham cut the birds in half, right? And my response to her, which I thought was theologically sound, was because they're tiny. These birds are small. There's, but the truth is, you start looking at different commentaries and you start doing Google searches, there's, there's tons of answers. And you know what? We both agreed. They contradict, and they're not really scriptural either. But everybody's got an answer. God Questions is a very valid, safe source. I've not ever been disappointed with the answers I've seen there yet. The reason I'm going to use them instead of a commentary is because the other reason I like them is I'm pretty dense, and sometimes they just put it right there in plain English. What does it mean that God is holy? I love how they said it, other than commentaries. Y'all, God's holiness, according to GodQuestions.org, God's holiness is what separates him from all other beings. What makes him separate and distinct from everything else. God's holiness is more than just his perfection or sinless purity. It is the essence of his otherness, his transcendence. God's holiness embodies the mystery of his awesomeness and causes us to gaze and wonder at him as we begin to comprehend just a little of his majesty. And we read part of that one more time. God's holiness is more than just his perfection or sinless purity. That's what I tend to think of. He cannot sin, he will not sin, he will not tempt you with sin. Like there's that sinless purity, right? But it's also his essence of otherness, his transcendence. 
In other words, he's not like us. His holiness embodies the mystery of his awesomeness and causes us to gaze and wonder at him as we just begin to comprehend who he is. The word glory. We say God is glorious and we do all things for his glory. Well, what does glory mean? The idea that the Hebrews, the, the, the Hebrew word for glory actually meant weightiness. So the, the best thing I can give you here is sometimes we have those decisions that come at us. Like last night I told Chas, don't worry about dinner, I'll take care of it. It was an easy decision because Brahms was right down the road. Right? That was a really light decision, but then we also know there's those decisions in life that have weight to them. There's a situation that's coming up that, that you know, and, and it just feels weighty. Like that, you know what I mean? Like, whatever it is, there, all we know how to say is, I can feel the weight of it. You can't hold it, you can't touch it, you can't look at it, but you just feel the weight of it. That's what the original Hebrew word for glory meant. That there is a weightiness to God. Then when we think of God, He's not light, but there's a weightiness to Him. And all that ties together, and I think we need it to understand that God will judge sin. I think that whenever we have a low view of God, then we have a low view of sin, then we don't understand His judgment. But a high view of God means that there is a high distaste for sin, which means that we understand His judgment. So God must always be held high. So a high view of God, a low view of man, will cause us to forsake sin. But you and I will still contend with sin while we're in this life. And if you think you don't contend with sin, then pray that the Lord opens your eyes to pride. Like it's all around us. It's always going to manifest itself in some way. But if we're new creatures, then why? Paul even contends with that in Romans. And he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And those things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. So it's sin within me. Excuse me. It's sin within me. So the old flesh is not dead. He's dying. But there is a new man, a new flesh that's within us, a new heart that despises those things. And so that's why we can contend with it. That's why we can overcome it. So there's God's judgment. There's His holiness. There's His glory. Okay, so all of that to say, just a reminder to set the context, God is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. He is other than us. And He is majestic. If all those things are true, then God can only do what is right and just. He cannot commit evil then, nor can He condone evil. He is holy and completely pure and holy and right. Therefore, the most untainted, infinitely, deeply pure good that has ever or will ever exist is God in His very being. Like your best day in comparison to what great actually means. We will see him one day and it will radically redefine what good and great actually means. We can say in this world that, that we've strived to live a, a pure and holy life and one day we will be with him face to face and we're going to go, oh wow, I totally thought I had it and I didn't. He redefines everything. His very essence is only good. So then why does he judge? Because he has to. If he's good, if he's holy, and if he's just, then anything unjust, anything unholy, anything bad, as a loving father, I love that the, the Bairds picked good, good father for today. And it actually, we did it last week also, right? Whenever we were, was it the previous week? 
Okay, we did it in the context of God's care and God's covenanting. But the reason those are good is because in all of his otherness, in all of his completely separating, all of his goodness and and purity, he's a good father to us. So what that means is he's always there for us. He's always forgiving. He's always caring. But, But just like my own kids, whenever they step out of line, it's loving for me to discipline them. And that's what Hebrews actually points us to, is that discipline in the moment is not enjoyable, but it's for training to make us upright. Proverbs points to that too, that as parents, we have the hard, unending task of disciplining our children. Why? To raise them up in the right way. God, being a good father, is going to punish the sin in our life to raise us up in the right way. His desire for us is holiness, not complacency. All right, so I'm really going somewhere with this. I promise, okay? We have to grasp that his judgment is good. And I'm really hammering that because in our world, they would say that that's completely unloving. God just wants me to be happy and to be who I feel like I'm supposed to be. No, he doesn't. He wants you to be who he wants you to be, his son, his daughter. And to be his son and daughter means that we keep growing in our holiness. And anything that leads us astray from it, he will correct us as a loving father. Why? Because he knows what's good for us. Therefore, throughout Scripture, we're going to see him punish individual sin in a variety of ways, through unrest. Right? We, we see him punished through unrest. The, the psalmist cannot sleep at night. There's just kind of a weightiness and a weariness to it. We see him do it through pain. We even see him um, in the New Testament says that because some have taken the, the Lord's Supper in an unholy manner, that's why some of them are sick and have died. Like he will punish in a variety of ways to get our attention so that we do not go astray. And we even see in Acts, it's through immediate death. Some, some of the community uh, leaders came to the apostles and said, we've sold our land and here are the proceeds. But the truth is they didn't bring all the proceeds and so they just fall dead. I mean, it's just like in the Old Testament, um, we see rebellions rise up and we see nation, like we see them squashed. We see the earth open up in some instances and just swallow people, right? Like we see God do extreme things as a result of sin because sin is an extreme thing before a holy God. Okay. Here's my comfort for you Christians. I like that that's funny to you. Okay. Christians, he will not let you be comfortable in sin. That's my comfort to you. He will not let you be comfortable in sin. Why in the world is that comforting to you? Because you just need to know that if he's making you uncomfortable, there's probably something that he's trying to work out in your life. Or if you've committed sin, it's his love and his care that says, I see you, I know, and I want you to make that right. It should bring us comfort that he will not let us be comfortable in our sin. It would be unloving for him to do that. The depth of his love is that he will make us uncomfortable in our sin. Like a good and loving father, he's going to get your attention so you know his dissatisfaction. And he has to deal with us each differently. I've got three kids, one of each, right? So, so Jackson, I just give him a look, and he knows. And sometimes he kind of has that sixth sense of, I don't even have to give him a look. He just knows. But for me to say, Jackson, I'm, man, I'm really disappointed, that's all it takes. Gavin, 
is the one you have to walk through the process and explain yourself again and again and upon hearing him again and again. He wants to talk through that. But once he knows and, and you walk through that, uh, it, it hurts him more to, to be put alone by himself or to be put in timeout than it does Jackson. Jackson, it's, man, I'm really disappointed, breaks his heart. Gavin, it breaks his heart. It just takes a little bit longer to break his heart, okay? And then Kenley, she doesn't care. Like, I'm disappointed. She's like, okay. <laughs> She's different. Each one of them had phases of spankings whenever they were younger, and each one responded to them differently. Each one is disciplined differently. So are we. God disciplines us each in different ways, but he will discipline us whenever we sin. Not out of frustration, but out of love. But it may be that, that some of us can understand the psalmist in Psalm 6. psalmist says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears and I drench my couch with my weeping. You know, you read the context of that psalm, that's the effect of sin in a Christian's life. To be a Christian doesn't mean that you won't sin. I wish it, I wish it did. It just means you're going to have a distaste for sin now. You won't like it. You'll want to repent of it. You'll want to stay away from it. You'll put up guards all around you. So just know that. Um, but I, I wanted to handle that. But he will judge sins in Christians' lives. But that's called discipline. But he's going to judge sin in non-Christians more aggressively. But you know what his desire is? That no one should perish, but that all should reach salvation. Sometimes our prayer needs to be for the lost. Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get their attention. Not that we want ill for them, but we want the greater good of them being brought into the fold where they find comfort. You know, we also see God's judgment on whole nations. He brings them to ruin and utter destruction. You start in Genesis and go to Revelation. He destroys whole nations for their rebellion. He uses nations as he wants to. They are overthrown on the battlefield, even though they have the mightiest armies. And in, in Genesis 6, he judged the whole world. Why did God flood the entire world? Listen to Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's your coffee mug verse right there. Right? That's one of the greatest indictments against the sinfulness of man. Every single, thought, every single thought of the intentions of man's heart was only evil continually. And his response to that was to judge the world through a flood. We know the Noahic covenant. He's not going to flood it. Now, Scripture says the world is being saved up for fire. There will not be a flood of waters. There will be fire. And everything will be set ablaze. God judges sin. Okay, so that's an understanding of God's judgment, God's grace. Okay, so if God judges sin, what hope do we or anybody have? His grace. His grace and only His grace. There's, there's two words I want you to understand very quickly because they are important in the Bible. And then we're going to start accelerating towards Sodom and Gomorrah here. Mercy and grace. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. So mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. So it's kind of an inverse of those two definitions. So mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. So 
It's because of mercy that he does not give us his wrath, which we do deserve. And it's his grace that does not give us, or I'm sorry, that does give us what we don't deserve, which is um, full on judgment and full on um, grace. Let me try that one again. Let me try this. His mercy is not giving us what we do deserve, which is really the wrath of God and casting us into hell. Like that's the, that's the full, I'm trying to use some gospel terms here. His grace is that he gives us what we do not deserve, which is the forgiveness of our sins. We don't deserve those. And you know what we definitely don't deserve? To be in fellowship with him every day and every night. You know what we also don't deserve? Heaven. You know what we also don't deserve? To be with him for all of eternity in the fullness of his presence. Like there's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. His mercy and his grace are fully bound up in the perfection of Christ. We see his mercy and we see his grace. The wrath that was reserved for us, his mercy, he didn't give it to us. He gave it to to Christ. His grace in Christ is that everything that was belonging to Christ, he gave to us. A couple of months ago, we preached on the, the theological term double imputation. That's all bound up in mercy and grace. In this uh, conversation between Abraham and God, that's what we see. We see this conversation of judgment and grace that, that God does not change his mind. What we understand and what we see, if we really look at it, is that Abraham changes his mind. God doesn't move. Abraham does. Abraham begins to understand that God's judgment is just and that that the only hope that there is, is grace. And God even shows his judgment and grace. He says, oh, I'm going to destroy Sodom because I've heard the outcry. I'm going to go down myself and see if it's as bad as they say it is. So here's the outcry against Sodom. Here's the judgment. And then he says, but for the sake of 10 righteous people, I won't destroy it. Like if there were 10 righteous people. So I think what begins to happen and why Abraham finally goes, okay, is because Abraham begins to see the just judgment and the grace of God. Both are rich in their fullness. So, God's judgment and grace in Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll give you two sections. Sodom and Gomorrah takes the the longest of the discussions. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah, what is God's judgment? I think why. Why does God judge Sodom and Gomorrah? Sexual immorality. As I was studying for this, um, you would be amazed that there's a rejection that this has nothing to do with sexual immorality and that he's judging Sodom because of their lack of hospitality. There's been books written on this. There are others who would contend with this because not everyone brought the angels in. They did not welcome them, which was big in the Hebrew culture, but it was sexual immorality. And yes, namely, clearly homosexuality was a part of that. But more than that, it was a city of wickedness. It was a city of perversion. And lest we forget it, I mean, look, Jude 1.7, I'll just read to you. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as example by undergoing a punishment by eternal fire. Scripture clearly tells us what the sin was. Let Scripture always define Scripture and clarify. So if you see commentaries and you're ever like, Mm, not sure. We need to check our preferences, but also check our convictions. But Scripture clearly tells us 
Why Sodom and Gomorrah? There, a plain reading of Scripture tells you what was wrong with Sodom. And so, be careful. The clear sin was sexual morality, homosexuality being one of those. The reason I want to clarify that is because for us to hold to those convictions in this world doesn't jive with the rest of the world. I know several who genuinely believe that some of the commands of God and some of His expectations, they were just Old Testament practices. It doesn't matter anymore. It's outdated. You go to the New Testament where homosexuality and sexual immorality are spoken against, and but that was, they'll say, but that was just that was Paul writing, not Jesus. And in that culture, and they'll try to make everything about the culture of that time. Now, this is an incredibly old tactic by Satan. Go all the way back to the garden. How did the serpent deceive Adam and Eve? Did God really say? And they fell. Whenever you and I are posed with moral and ethical dilemmas of our day, it usually begins from within the camp. Within. Those who appear to be within. Wolves in sheep's clothing. And they begin with, but did God really say that this was a sin? Did God really say that it had to be this way? It's the same tactic that caused a man to fall that will tend to lead others to fall as well. Whenever we are looking at moral and ethical dilemmas of our day, y'all understand this. You're not being asked to make a decision of morality. You're being asked to question Scripture. Who am I to say that homosexuality and sexual morality is a sin? I'm nobody. But God's Word says it. So I'm no one, the judge, the creator of all things. He's the one who gets to define what sin is and what it is not. And so help me whenever I stand before the judgment seat in his perfect presence, I want to be able to say, I held to your word, even though the rest of the world didn't. So the questioning of morality in this world for us as Christians, you have to know the word. If you are not reading the word, you will not know how to navigate the morality of this world and how to navigate against it. So God's judgment on this sin is that he's going to burn this place up. It actually moves uh, in Genesis, and it quits calling them the men, and it starts saying the angels. So the angels go into Sodom, and you know where they find Lot? Sitting at the city gate. That's where the leaders of that community would sit. They would sit at the city gate. And so that's where we find Lot. And I've always been told that whenever, whenever Lot's at the city gate, that, and we see him there, that we've seen his compromise. And that we've seen like how he's just embraced that society. Scripture in the New Testament actually tells us a slightly different story. And I'll, I'm going to show you that here in just a second. But, but God's going to judge, um, judge this city. And um, what do the angels do? They blind the men. They, they pull Lot and his family literally by the hand out. We're going to see that in God's grace. And then they rain down um, hellfire. They rain down brimstone fire. It says, from the Lord. Not from the heavens, but from the Lord. And he judges them. There's also further judgment on Lot's wife, who was given directions. Do not stop in the valley and look back. And what does she do? She stops in the valley and she looks back. She's turned into a pillar of salt. Why a pillar of salt? I don't know. And to be quite honest, I don't care. Like, I care that God's judgment was true. What he warned against, he fulfills. Okay, so then where in the world of all this, where is God's grace? 
God rescues Lot and his immediate families. He rescues Lot, rescues his wife, and his daughters. His sons-in-law thought that he was joking, and they were left in Sodom. But God's grace is that he didn't leave them there. He did not leave the righteous. You just heard me say that the right way. God did not leave the righteous one in the city before he destroyed it. He said, I will not destroy it if there's a righteous one there. So what he did, he removed him. I'm going to show you that. We also see his abounding grace in this. Look at Genesis 19.16. But he, Lot, but Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Why in the world? Okay, so lest we think too unkindly of Lot, which I've been trained to do, right? It's just, y'all go to 2 Peter, verse 7. I just want you to see this to show you that, that God perceives righteousness differently than we judge it. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. This is why you need to read the, we need to read the whole counsel of Scripture because we find things like this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, who is greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, and then it clarifies, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That just blew my mind. Lot was righteous. I've been told over and over again what he had just condoned and become so much like them. And in a way, he had, because you know what? It says that he lingered. But righteousness isn't always about the moment. It's about the trajectory of the heart. Okay, we're going to go back to Genesis, and we're going to move through, through the rest of this. I also think it's God's grace, in case you missed it, that God preserves Zoar, where Lot went. God's, God's angel said, flee to the mountains. He's like, I can't, but I can make it to that city. Because he's no, he can't run a marathon, he's a sprinter. So he gets to Zoar, and God does not destroy that city with all the surrounding cities. So there's God's grace again. Y'all keep looking at Abimelech. You read this one. This is another one of those where Abraham and Sarah have their own plans. So Abraham and Sarah... Tell Abimelech, who has been in Genesis before, that she is Abraham's sister. And so Abimelech takes her into his household. Here's God's judgment. Why is God going to judge Abimelech? Because Abimelech had taken Sarah into his household, even though it was based on Abraham's half-truth. So Abimelech is actually in a pretty weird situation, if we're trying trying to look at this from the world. Because why is he supposed to suffer because of Abraham's sin? So, but there is judgment. God comes to him and says, if you touch her, then I'm going to destroy your house. There will be nothing left of it if you touch her. And so a quick summary is, you know, we already know that, that Abimelech takes her in and God warns Abimelech in a dream. And then Abimelech goes to Abraham. He's like, what have you done? Like, what's going on here? And, and then he returns Sarah to Abraham, along with additional gifts like servants and sheaves and goats. 
um, but God's going to judge him. So look at this. God's amazing grace. God never judged him. He didn't judge Abimelech. His grace is that he warned him before he could ever sin. I mean, don't miss that. Abimelech takes her in, and God's judgment is, if you do this, then this will happen. But God's abounding grace is that he moves towards Abimelech, and he says, don't touch her, because if you touch her, then you will sin. That's grace that God would warn us. You know where we get very clear warnings of what to watch for in this world? Scripture tells us over and over again what we should cling to and what we should avoid. But God graciously warns Abimelech so that he might know how near to sin he actually was. God's grace was his nearness to Abimelech. Also, this is, I think, awesome. God acknowledges Abimelech's clear conscience when he hears his confession. God says in Genesis 26, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Abimelech said, I didn't know. And God says, I know you didn't know. And then look what it says. And it was I, God, who kept you from sinning against me. What grace that God says you were put into a bad situation and I guarded you from it. Abimelech could have still stepped into it. But what grace that God says, it is I who kept you from sinning against me. Probably the prayers we need at the end of each day are probably mirroring that. God, thank you that you kept me from sinning against you today. Like we see that in his grace, that he gives us that distaste. The birth of Isaac. Y'all, where do we see in, in Genesis 21 God's judgment? Nowhere. It's only his grace. Like nowhere is there judgment. There's only his grace. Here God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham. This is grace upon grace because not only Abraham and Sarah um, who laughed whenever they were told that they were going to have an offspring, they both laughed in their old age. And then God says, okay, but here's your grace, but also grace upon grace because it's through this that we will receive the Christ because of whom we all sit here today. Like it's just grace. God, develop, like go back all the way to Abraham and God's conversation. Will you indeed destroy everybody if you found but ten righteous? Here we see God not only fulfilling his covenant and the grace of that covenant, but him cultivating more righteous amongst the earth because of our faith in Jesus Christ. There was, I'm sorry. Let me, let me just leave it there. God's grace is that he fulfills all of his promises and all of his promises are always true. We have his promises all throughout Scripture, and we see that God's grace towards us is that he will keep giving us these promises that we do not deserve, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he will uphold you with his righteous right hand, that his eyes are roaming to and fro throughout the earth seeking someone to give strength to. Like he will, for, uh, all of these promises of his forgiveness and the fullness of his presence are absolutely true. That's his grace. And we see it in the birth of Isaac. What I told you I would do, look, I've done it even in the absurdity of the world. And now we're to Hagar and Ishmael. Where's God's judgment? It's not there. Where's his grace? You know, the whole situation of Hagar and Ishmael has been brought about by Abraham and Sarah, who again, hear the promises of God, trust the promises of God, but then like to step into those situations and try to help God out. He doesn't need our help to fulfill his promises. But Hagar and Ishmael are here because Sarah said to Abraham after hearing the promise, 
I'm an, I'm an old woman and there's no way this can happen. So take my maidservant, take Hagar, and she will give you an offspring. And, and after that, then God tells Abraham, that wasn't the plan and that's not how it's going to work. I'm going to give you your offspring. And, but after Hagar has Ishmael, then there's a bitterness between Sarah and Hagar. And this house is, is no doubt getting more and more tense. Well, now Isaac is born. And so Sarah has Isaac, and she says to Abraham, you need to do something with Hagar and Ishmael. They're out of here. They're gone. The whole situation has been constructed by Abraham and Sarah. And so here is Hagar. We see her in the desert. We see her with Ishmael. And Scripture says that she put him under a bush, and she went a bow's shot, a bow's length. So you shoot a bow and arrow, and as far as it could go, that's where she went because Scripture says she, did not, she could not bear to see her son die. This is a pretty desperate, despairing situation, completely wrought about by Abraham and Sarah and their sinfulness, just like we saw with Abimelech. And what we see in this situation is God's abounding grace. Before I get to that, you need to rightly see these heroes of the faith. They are commended in Scripture. I'm not throwing them under the bus. We're just seeing their life on display. They were imperfect. They sought to fulfill God's promises themselves, and yet they were completely and wholly redeemed by a God who would constantly forgive them. So we see that play out here. Hagar and Ishmael are not part of the Abrahamic promise, and yet God gives them grace, and he says, I am going to bless Ishmael, and I am going to bless you. Here is my grace upon grace upon grace. And so how do we pull this all together? After he saves Hagar and Ishmael, then God says, as scripture says that he opened her eyes and she saw well and God was with the boy and he grew up. Yeah, God stoops near to his creation and in his presence there is grace. So his judgment is real, his grace is abounding. What began as a conversation of judgment and grace between Abraham and God, it spans these chapters and we see God's judgment and its justice and then we also see his grace. And that is where we live today. The very nature of God in His holiness is that He will judge sin and He will give grace to whom He gives grace. But keep in mind that grace is not what we've ever earned. It's not what we've ever deserved. It's in fact what we don't deserve. The fact that we sit here is because of His grace. I think the greatest statement of God's grace amidst our own judgment is this. He made Him who knew no sin become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One more time. He made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to become sin so that in Jesus Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Justice, Christians, has been dealt. Grace has been delivered. It should be freeing. Lord God, What boldness from Abraham to say to you. But what if, God, as though you had not considered these things? But Lord, thank you for recording this so that we can see that you will judge sin. And if you flooded the world by, fi- by, by flood, by water, you will destroy the world by fire. It's scriptural. It's going to happen. May we be found in you not having a righteousness of our own, but the alien righteousness of Christ that's been given to us. And Lord, may we rest in this, that we have a God who is a good Father and He comforts us in our affliction.
Lord God, we love you, and we, we thank you for Scripture. I'm glad that we can see how you move throughout the Old Testament in unusual circumstances to show your goodness, your grace, and your justice. Lord God, we love you. Amen.